Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6, verses 1 to 3 is our passage today. But we will read verses 1 to 8 to have an idea of the context and the comparison that he makes between one group of people and another group. Hebrews 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we shall do, if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls upon it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you, we ask you to grant us understanding into this passage, but also, Lord, give us the grace we need by your Spirit of grace to live accordingly. Help us to press on to maturity. May we come, Lord, seeking your mercy, seeking your grace, everything that you have to offer, because you have promised to give us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Grant that to each of us as we meditate on these words. In the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. In verses 1 to 3, our apostle, he wants us to leave the elementary teaching about the Christ. Verse 1 and he wants us to press on to maturity. He wants us to leave the elementary things and press on to mature things. He wants us to forsake the infantile things and go to those which relate to adulthood and to maturity. He wants us to leave one thing and press on to another. Well, in this passage, in verses 1 to 3, he describes a group of people that he is exhorting to do such by their their desire to do so, he says, let us press on to maturity, but also by the will of God. In verse 3, and this we shall do if God permits. In this case, this group, now that we are talking about believers, now we are talking about the saved, now that we're talking about those who are redeemed and who have a new nature, the new creation, the new nature or the new heart needs to fight against the old nature, the flesh, the old heart, and press on to maturity. We have that ability that God has now given to us because now in our spirit, as we read from Psalm 32, there is no deceit. And when David said that, he meant that about the new man, the new creature, uh, creature that we now are in Christ. That's what he meant when he said that. And that's what he is assuming right here. Our apostle is assuming that we have a new nature that is able to press on to maturity. However, this does not happen just by our own effort. It happens, verse 3, by the will of God. If God permits it, it will happen. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. That is the one group that God will, from the beginning to the end, by also their effort, because they are a new creature in Christ, 
By those means, God will ensure our salvation. He will from the beginning until the end. But this salvation has, from beginning to end, in the middle, sanctification. Godliness, holiness, maturity, growth. This is what must take place in our life. That's his focus in verses 1 to 3. And why does he say this, that we must press on to maturity? Because in the previous passage, he brought up in chapter 5, he brought up Melchizedek and said that he can't explain to, Mil- uh, to them about Melchizedek because they're still dull of hearing. He needs to goad them, he needs to prick them because they are lazy and lackadaisical in their Christian life. So he needed to goad them before he does talk about Melchizedek further, which he will do in chapter 7. A, a longer explanation as to who Melchizedek was and the significance of that person in relation to the work of Christ. So in the previous chapter, he said, you are babes or you are infants. You are like little babies who only need milk. But you should, by this point in your life, be a teacher able to teach people, anyone else, and be mature in the word of righteousness. So he wants them to proceed on to that. And he says, those that do proceed on to that are according to chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. They press on to maturity by the will of God. However, there's another group of people which he describes in verses 4 to 8, 4 to 8, where they do not press on to maturity. They do not persist. They do not continue in the faith, but they end up falling away from the faith. This we will learn about more next time. But he says these are the two kinds of people, those who press on to maturity and those who have some light, they have some grace, but then they withdraw, but then they backslide, they fall away. They reject what they said they initially believed. There's two groups that he describes. The one group, the the good group, the blessed group is in verse 7. This group produces vegetation. They produce fruit in their life and receive a blessing from God. But the other group that does not persists, but in fact falls away, they produce thorns and thistles, and they end up being burned up. They're all burned up. So, let's see how he further describes these who ought to leave the elementary teachings about the Christ and press on to maturity, which is chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. Verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. What is or what are the elementary teachings or the elementary doctrine about the Christ? Well, he says in verses 1 and 2 what they are. In his mind, this is what comes to the fore of his mind. He says, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. This is elementary, he says. It should be elementary or foundational. You should know these basics about this already, that repentance from dead works does not need to be laid again. That is, once we come to true faith in Christ and true repentance, turning away from our sin and believing in Christ, we repented of our dead works. We came to a realization because the Holy Spirit gave us this realization that everything we did before that was worthless and useless. We had nothing to present to God. Our works were dead. With that attitude, that's when conversion occurs. Repentance from dead works and repent toward God. God tells us what our works were to him. Nothing. Useless. They were dead. 
But then, once we have done that, there's no need to do that again in terms of having this salvation, having this understanding, and then rejecting it, losing it, and then regaining it. That kind of thing does not happen. Conversion and unconversion does not happen. When true conversion happens, unconversion or contra-conversion, something in reverse, does not happen. That's why he said in verse 6, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. And when true conversion has happened, that conversion or repentance will last and there will be daily and continual repentance until we meet the Lord. That kind of repentance is true, but not from dead works. So are we able to explain this to folks? When we witness, when we evangelize, when we talk to people about the gospel of Christ, are we able to say that? Because he's telling them, you should have already come to understand this and be able to explain it to others. He's not saying when he says leave it that you reject the doctrine or that you never think about it or you never talk about it. What he's saying is I shouldn't have to explain it to you again. You should already know this and you should be able to teach others this truth. As well, he says in verse 1, another elementary teaching is faith toward God. Faith toward God. This is not, when we speak of repentance, we're talking about what we ought to reject and understand, but faith toward God, what we ought to embrace, what we ought to accept, what we ought to believe. We ought to believe in everything that God has said. Don't put faith in ourselves. Don't put faith in people. Don't put faith in your things. Don't put faith in anyone else. As it says, do not boast in men. We read from 1 Corinthians 3. Let us not boast in men. This should not happen. The faith, the trust, the confidence should be in God himself by his word. Our confidence should be in God. This is elementary. This is foundational. When we are a true believer, we ought to be able to say this to other people and not have our personality cults. Personality cults or hero worship, which often happens within Christianity. I love so-and-so preacher or this other preacher or these five over here or this one group over there or that organization there, that parachurch ministry over there. And you go on and on. People go on and on as though they are superstars, super preachers, and we are their fanboys, cheerleaders with our pom-poms. That's not the way it should be. It should be faith toward God. Everything God says ought to be our central focus. What God says, faith in Him, faith in everything He has said in His Word about what true salvation is, the true way of godliness, the true way of knowledge, the true way of discernment, as He mentioned to us in the previous chapter at the end, verse 14. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Faith toward God practices discernment between good and evil. Furthermore, verse 2, he speaks of more ritual things in the first part of verse 2. Instruction about washings. Instruction about washings. Or your Bible may say baptisms in the plural. Baptisms or washings. Baptisms in the plural it has to do with immersion. The word baptism usually has to do with the term Immersion, that's the meaning of the word. And here when he says, do I need to explain to you the true meaning of baptism or the various things that baptism 
relates to in the Christian life? Do I need to explain to you again? Don't you already know that? Aren't you able to teach others about it? When you witness to people who trust in the wrong way about baptism, aren't you able to explain that to people? Baptism represents, according to Romans chapter 6, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. It is in his likeness when we are baptized that we die to our sin, we are buried, and then we are raised to newness of life, to live after him. Is it, is it uh, in your mind, is it clear enough in your mind that you're able to explain it to others? And if not, then I have to reteach you these elementary things. You should already know what baptism is all about. And when he uses it in the plural, it may also mean because in the Old Testament, water was sometimes sprinkled. And the water being sprinkled was a symbol and representation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, as it says in Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27, when he says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you, and then he mentions the Holy Spirit that he will cause to dwell within us and cause us to walk in God's ordinances. Well, if he means this also by using the plural of baptisms or washings, this sprinkling of the Spirit, are we able to explain the role of the Holy Spirit in our salvation? There's so much confusion about the Holy Spirit these days. The person of the Holy Spirit, his identity, but also his ministry. What does the Holy Spirit do upon conversion and after our conversion? The role of the Spirit. We should be able to explain that so that there isn't confusion. That's why there is so much misunderstanding and even heresies based on a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit and washing uh, by the Holy Spirit. Further, verse 2, the laying on of hands. The laying on of hands. This may be uh, in two or more ways that he means this statement. The laying on of hands was in the Old Testament, for example, in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus, when the sacrifices are explained, it is explained that the worshiper who brings his animal to the altar or brings it to the temple or tabernacle, when he brings it, at a point he's supposed to lay his hand on the head of the animal. He's supposed to lay his hand on the head of the animal. Do we understand what that means? Why did they do that? Are we able to explain it to others, especially our Jewish friends who think that um, the sacrifice of animals was their way of salvation? No. And even in some religions around the world, they think that if they just give up an animal, they just give up even their son or daughter to the gods, the idols, they sacrifice them there, then God will be pleased with them. Are we able to explain the true meaning of the laying on of hands, especially in the Old Testament? What did it mean? It meant that the worshiper is coming to the altar because he sinned against God. And the worshiper is not being put to death at that time, but the animal is as a representative in the place of the worshiper. That's what laying on of hands meant. Putting the hands on the animal meant that I understand I deserve to die, but this animal is dying in my place. And furthermore... It's not as though the dead animal now on the altar would suffice for my sins. The dead animal is only helpful as he represents the sacrifice of Christ. If he represents the sacrifice of Christ and I'm putting my faith and trust in the sacrifice of Christ, then good. Salvation has come to this household, right? But if I don't put my faith in Christ and I put my faith in this animal, then there's no salvation. How is this animal going to take my sins? for my eternal salvation. No way. 
there's no man can by any means redeem his own um, brother from sin or give to God a ransom for his soul. Psalm 49, 7-9 says. And if a brother can't do that, what makes us think that an animal can do that? So laying on of hands, do we understand substitutionary death or substitutionary atonement? That Jesus had to die in our place. That's why the hand was laid on the animal. And if, this, if that is not the meaning that he meant here, or if he meant an additional meaning of this, it might be authority. Authority. That is, when in the New Testament, when the elders were chosen and when the apostles cho- chose elders and missionaries, they would pray to God, praying for God's will. They would also examine the candidate for evangelist, pastor, missionary. They would examine them examine their character according to 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, examine them, and only after they had confirmation on the godliness and capability, the ability to teach of the, of the man that they raised up, and the will of God, a confirmation of the will of God, only then would they lay hands on the candidate so that he might become a missionary or uh, a pastor. This is what we find in 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, he says, 5.22, Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thus share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily. That's why it takes prayerful examination of a godly man as a candidate to be an elder. And thus, because if we don't do it um, carefully and we do it hastily, we share responsibility for the sins of others. And yet he says, keep yourself free from sin. Isn't this also a basic teaching? How is it that we can just put an 18-year-old or 19, 20-year-old, or for that matter, 24, 25-year-old, immediately into the pulpit and expect everything that is good for godliness and a a godly example, leading people through experience and life experience, through the trials of life and families and church conflicts and everything that happens like that. How can we expect a 20-year-old young man to do that? We can't. So we have to understand properly the laying on of hands. It takes maturity. He can be in training. He can be in training under somebody older than he who has that experience, but he should not be the main one making the decisions and guiding people by example and even by preaching and teaching. He should not be. It takes time. So laying on of hands. If we would understand this basic teaching, we'd be able to teach others and solve, help solve so many problems that we find going on in church life. Furthermore, the resurrection of the dead. In the Old Testament, the resurrection of the dead was predicted. For example, Daniel chapter 12 in verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Daniel 12, 2. Resurrection of the dead was preached and taught, and it was the hope of the ancient patriarchs. It was the hope of all the Old Testament saints. Resurrection of the dead. Are we able to explain that? This would be elementary. When we witness to people, are we able to explain the resurrection of the dead. We know for, for certain in the New Testament, quite clearly, such as 1 Corinthians 15, it is a foundational belief of the Christian faith. Resurrection of the dead. 
Are we able to explain from the Bible the truth of this doctrine, that we all will rise from the dead, the righteous to a resurrection, res resurrection of life and the wicked to a resurrection of judgment or condemnation? And they will stay in that resurrected body for all eternity, whether the righteous or the wicked. Not only is that an important doctrine to understand ourselves as we witness to others, because other people, the false religions of the world and some of the cults within Christianity, they do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They put their hope in reincarnation. They put their hope in a heavenly paradise where there are all kinds of uh, sensational, uh, kinds of luxurious experiences that they will have forever and ever. They're not putting their hope in God. They're putting their hope in some kind of lush and luxurious future experience forever and ever. Others among the false religions are saying that when we die, we become nothing. We absolutely cease to exist. Others say that we become like a drop of water in the great ocean. We lose our self-identity, we lose our personality, and we become like the inanimate ocean. Because that's what God is. God is like the inanimate ocean. Others say that we don't have a soul, we just have a body that is animated, and upon death, that's it. We, even within Christianity, that belief is common in some circles. But resurrection of the dead, have we contemplated and studied this issue so that when we witness that people can hear what the truth is, that there is a day of resurrection when we, if we believe in Christ, will rise from the dead and be with Christ forever. Because I live, you shall live also. I am the resurrection and life. He who lives and believes in me shall never die. These are the things that Jesus taught. We will have an immortal resurrected body just like he did when he rose from the dead. And further, eternal judgment. Verse 2, eternal judgment. You know that God created the world in order to prepare it for the day of judgment. God not only created the world, but he didn't create it aimlessly. He created it with a goal to prepare it for the day of judgment. Many people have not considered this truth. They have not assumed that this is why God created the world. They assume all kinds of other reasons as to why God created the world. But in the Bible, it says he created it in order to judge it. In Romans chapter 3, when the people there were misunderstanding the presence of sin and unrighteousness in the world, Paul, Paul rebuts them by saying, May it never be. Is, there's no, nothing wrong with God, and God did not make a mistake with the presence of sin and unrighteousness in the world. He says in Romans 3, 6, For otherwise, how will God judge the world? Didn't you know? Did you not hear before? That God created the world to judge the world? That's why there's sin in the world, to prepare us for the day of judgment. And if we're in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But if we're not in Christ, then the only thing that awaits is eternal punishment flaming fire, and vengeance from God. This is eternal judgment. This is why we are here. This is the common way of preaching. Whenever we see preaching faithfully portrayed in the scriptures, it involves preparing people for the judgment to come. This is what Paul the Apostle did with even a Roman authority as Felix. Felix 
was um, the authority at, at this point in, in Acts chapter 24, and Paul is preaching to him as a prisoner. Notice, Paul is a prisoner, and what do prisoners usually want, especially if they're innocent? They want to be released from prison. If they are innocent, they know they are there unjustly. Paul would have and could have been tempted to soften his message with Felix because Felix had the ability to release him. But he does not. It says here in Acts 24, 25, And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. Paul did not let up, but he said he was preaching righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Righteousness, righteousness of God, which is in the gospel. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, that is, it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. That's in the gospel of Christ. The righteousness of Christ reckoned to us. Self-control, that summarizes the Christian life. We used to not practice self-control. Now, self-control is important to us and is a fruit of the Spirit. Self-control and also the judgment to come. But we do this, we live this way, and we need righteousness because there's a day of judgment. He was preaching this to Felix, eternal judgment. Not only to Felix, but he preached this, Paul the Apostle preached this, to the people of Athens, to the philosophers at Athens and the religious authorities of Athens. He preached this same thing. He taught them that they should worship the true God, the Creator, not worship idols, and that he had a message for them to hear, to believe in the true God. So he says in verse 30, Acts 17, 30, to the Athenians, to these who are bright and intelligent, the sophisticated of the world, he says in Acts 17, 30, therefore having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. The fact that Jesus Christ is the only one to have risen from the dead shows that God, God's authority and God's vindication of him is evident and that we should believe in him because God has appointed him to be the great judge on the day of judgment. God the Father has appointed Christ. So he preached that judgment, eternal judgment, to the Athenians, and even to the sophisticated, intelligent Athenians. Eternal judgment. What do we know about it? Have we ourselves studied that? And are we able, when we witness, are we able to tell others about this eternal judgment and how to prepare for that great day? Are they ready in Christ? Are they prepared to meet God face to face? What is their attitude? What is their uh, demeanor towards those kinds of things? Are they thinking about them biblically? And are we thinking about them biblically and able to tell our friends about it? These are elementary things. These are elementary teachings. He says we need to leave this behind. That is, I shouldn't have to tell you again and again and again what these truths are. You should already know about them and you should be telling people about them. This is what he means. And leave the, those behind in terms of being taught. And he says in verse 1, let us press on to maturity. Press on to maturity. 
which means understand more about the things of God, understand more about the Word of God, understand more about the person and nature of God Himself, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Not only who they are, their identity, but also their work or their ministry in the world. There are many, many more things to understand from the Scriptures that we need to comprehend, that will be good for our mind, will be good for our edification, will be good for our Christian growth, will help us in holiness and righteousness, and even give us further and stronger conviction to have boldness when we preach the gospel. It will give us that kind of conviction. The more we understand, the more confidence we will have in the Bible and be able to teach others to do so. But let's ask, what is it that prevents us from pressing on to maturity? I believe there are a couple of things that prevent us from pressing on to maturity. For one, it says press on. And in verse, chapter 5, verse 14, he says, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. It is difficult for many of us to press on, to practice, to be trained, and to, practice, and to use discernment. These are active. These take effort. We cannot be lackadaisical in the Christian life. These assume that the Christian life is a life where you have to tighten your belt. You have to be prepared. You have to gird, as he says in 1 Peter 1.13, gird your minds for action. It's not an inactive use of the mind. It's an active use of the mind. We cannot say that our Christianity is for the heart. It's not for the mind. No, it's for the heart and the mind. And it's for the hands too. It's for every part of our being. But what often happens is we get lazy and we don't want to press on because we want to have a Christianity that does not exert our minds, that does not cause us to think about the truths of God. That's one problem I think we face. Another problem about pressing on has to do with what we allow to stumble us to be in front of us. What we allow to be in front of us prevents us from maturing. How can we practice maturing when we allow the distractions and deflections to rise up in front of us? It's impossible. In fact, it, they are a big hindrance. This is why Jesus said in the parable of the sower, he says in his explanation, Matthew 13, 18, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The evil one, the devil, comes and takes what was sown in his heart. He does not understand it. Understanding. So he does not contemplate it. He does not think about it. He lets it go. Oh, that's too difficult. You're... you're being too complicated, or something like that, even though the Bible isn't too complicated in many, many ways. It's quite easy to understand. People use that excuse and say, well, that's a hard teaching. I, I don't want to believe in it. Such as when Jesus said, if, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in yourselves. When Jesus said that, they said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? And they walked away. What did Jesus mean when he said that? And they didn't want to think about it. And so when they don't want to think about it, that's the devil 
taking that word that was spoken, taking it away from within them. Another obstacle is in verse 20. And the one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. This second type of soil, they hear the word and immediately they receive it with joy. Oh, I never heard that before. Oh, that sounds good. That was a good promise. That was a good message. Maybe it was the delivery of the message. They immediately received it with joy. Yet, it wasn't true. It wasn't true, lasting joy. He is only in him, uh, he, it says, he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. Uh, temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Remember Hebrews 6 also speaks of falling away? Here, they hear this word and they have this initial good reaction to it, but affliction and persecution, the trials of life, all of the exigencies that we face day by day, they press upon us, they demand our time and our attention, they make, make us anxious, they bewilder us, we don't know what to do. We're running here and there, we're losing our breath because we're trying to keep up with life, the afflictions of life, whether they are tragedies or this or that, people, problems, whatever they are. These afflictions come into our life and they distract us. And further, persecution. Hey, if I say I'm a Christian, if I say I believe, if I say I believe that this or that sin or practice is a sin, then the people who hear that will hate me. They won't say anything good about me, so I won't say it. I won't say it. I won't do it because I don't want their disfavor. I don't want them to hate me I don't want them to ridicule me and call me bad names. So, when they think of that, they fall away. And then thirdly, the third seed, verse 22, and the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. In this case, there's no maturity, there's no fruit, because it says here, the worry of the world, the things that the world worries about, what, do the, what does the world worry about? They worry about fame. They like to be popular. They worry about fortune. They want to make a lot of money. And they want a lot of fun. They focus on these three, right? The pleasures of the world. They, when they focus on these three, then they, right here he says, it, they become unfruitful. They are unfruitful. They don't bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit because they have been distracted by these enticements. And then verse 23, And the one on whom seed was sown on the good ground, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. In this case, there is fruit that is born. There is maturity. You can pluck the fruit from the tree and consume it. It's not partially grown fruit, it's as, as though the previous kinds of ground, partially that you cannot consume it, you cannot eat it. It is fully grown fruit. And there's different levels of it, 100, 60, and 30-fold. He's exhorting them, produce fruit. Pr produce fruit to maturity. And one more point to make on maturity is who is it that is our example? 
Who is the best and supreme example of maturity? Is it one another? Is it somebody in the Bible? Is it, is it a prophet or an apostle? No. Though we can learn from one another, and though we can learn from the prophets and the apostles as to their own maturity, the supreme example is Christ himself. Whenever Christ says whatever he says, whenever Christ does whatever he does, he is the best example. He's the perfect example. He's the sinless example of what it means to be mature. This is the reason the apostle says to us in Ephesians chapter 4 that we're supposed to grow up in all aspects into him. He says in Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Christ. We're supposed to be built up in Christ to conform to the image of Christ. Christ in all aspects of maturity. Which means we have a lofty goal. We have a very high goal to reach. And this goal is a lifelong goal. We will never attain to that goal right now, but we are supposed to strive for it. And as we strive for it and we persevere, one day when we do meet Christ face to face, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him just as He is. When we see Him, that's when we will 100% attain that goal. But right now, we're supposed to strive for it, work for it, press on to it, train, practice. This is what needs to happen right now with discernment, as he said in Ephesians. Now, we have been emphasizing our need because of the new man, the new heart, the new creation in Christ Jesus, which is true. We are exhorted now. We now have the ability that God has given to us by His Spirit coming to dwell within us. We are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit dwells within us in our new man. So now we have this ability. That is a matter of fact. The Bible is very plain with our responsibility. It is incumbent upon all of us to do this. However, we're not alone. And ultimately, it depends on God's will for us to succeed. Therefore, we ought to pray and depend on Him. He says in verse 3, And this we shall do if God permits. If God permits, if God wills, we will accomplish this. So, we have to depend on Him, and we have to put our trust in His will for our life. Put our confidence in Him, not in ourselves put our confidence in His power and His care for us, His concern for us, His love for us, so that we endure until the very end. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that He who began a good work in you will perfect it 
until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That verse, 2.12, is equivalent to Hebrews 6, 1 and 2, where he calls on us to work out, press on. But verse 13 is like Hebrews 6.3. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. The ultimate will is the will of God. God is at work in us to will and work for his good pleasure. This is why we will succeed. This is why no one shall snatch us out of the hand of the Son and of the Father, because the two are one. And this is also why he says in Romans 8, 38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We will succeed. We will overcome until the very end because nothing will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Absolutely. So, let's pray that God will enable us and that we will take seriously the need to press on to maturity. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Our Father, we ask you to grant us your grace, your powerful grace to walk in maturity, to reject the things of the world, to not focus on ourselves and our desires for fame, fortune, and fun, but to focus on our only Lord and Savior, to be like him in all things. Grant us the ability we need day by day to live according to your will. Fill us with your spirit. Guide us in the paths of righteousness for your namesake. Lead us to green pastures, and may we not desire the pastures of Satan, the, the enticements of the world. May we not desire them at all. Grant us godliness. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.